0: Hello. I'm downtown Decatur, Illinois. I'm sitting in the war memorial that commemorates World War II. There are lists of names of people who died and people who served, like here's US Navy Merle Wilcox, uh, served from October 1942 to November 44. obviously died in service. And, um, you know, it's been my privilege to have conducted literally thousands of uh, funerals over the years. And many of those are of people who served in our services. And consequently, there'll be uh, moments where uh, the, the Macon County Honor Guard team will come out and they'll present flags and 21-gun salute, things like that. Uh, the chaplain of that team is always there as well. And one of the things the chaplain always says is, here lie the mortal remains, and he'll, he'll use the person's name, he'll say, here lie the mortal remains amongst these monuments to the dead referring to all the gravestones and all the people who've died and their names on the gravestones. And it's this very poignant moment, then the 21 guns go off. And I was thinking about that today, sitting here. You know, this is not a monument to the dead per se, more so this is a monument to service, a monument to people who said, I'm gonna use what resources I have, namely all of my life, I'm gonna give for service to my nation. We are in worship today We are people who vote today. We are people who experience much of life today because of what people like this have given us. So on this Memorial Day, we remember them. And indeed, we we give thanks to God for all of their gracious care, their gracious sacrifices. And may they rest in peace.
1: Can we thank those who serve in our service or families who have given up the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf? Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Jonathan, I'm part of the pastoral team, and I wanna welcome those of you here in the West Auditorium, as well as those of you worshiping with, with us in the East Auditorium and Lovington and Church Online. It's so good to be with all of you here on this Memorial Day weekend or as we like to call it in ministry world, bullpen weekend with senior pastors across America give the sign, hey buddy, you're in for the weekend. You know, it's that kind of weekend. Anyway, I'm excited to be with you this morning and I wanna invite you to please turn in your Bible or your Bible app to Luke chapter 10. For those of you worshiping with us on church online, there's a Bible tab that you can follow in along with as well. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, Please stop by the Welcome Center following the service today, which is right outside the auditorium here to your left. Um, In other rooms, there are Bibles available as well. We would love to make sure that you have one as you leave today. And so today, we are in week two of a series called All of Me. And this series really is about our our submission to Jesus, our, our surrender to Jesus in every aspect of our lives. And there's three specific areas that we're looking at. The first one is, who are we? What does it mean for us to surrender Jesus and who we are? The second one is, is, what do I do? How do I surrender Jesus and what I do? It's what we're talking about today. And the third one is, how do we surrender to Jesus and what we own? And so um, last week, we talked about this idea, and, and we centered on this verse that Pastor Wayne shared from Ephesians chapter 5. And this is what the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 17. He says, Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And so this is great advice, but the question is, how do we do this? And so last week, Pastor Wayne talked about how we surrender who we are, specifically in those moments when there are just insurmountable odds in front of us, and we don't know how we're going to get over those. And he shared this, this idea, he says, surrendering people... Never accept the ordinary when the extraordinary is available through the power of the Spirit of God. You see, God has incredible power to do incredible things in our lives when we surrender to Him, when we devote ourselves to Him, and when we promote Him in our lives. And so this week, we're talking about surrendering to Him in everything that we do, and all the roles of our life, and how we spend our time. You see, we know how to follow God in church, in small group, and as we serve, but we, we don't know necessarily what does it mean to surrender to him in our work, in our everyday lives, in the things that we do. How do we surrender to him in those things? And so in order to get after this, first we need to talk about a theological concept called the kingdom of God. You see, when we understand God's kingdom, it shapes the way we think about surrendering to him in the roles and all that we do in our life. So let's start by talking about what a kingdom is, because we don't know what kingdoms are like anymore. Kingdoms are things of the past. They're the things of stories. They're the things of, of movies. They're the things of board games. And yes, we like the royal family, but we don't really believe they have a lasting impact on our life. We like we think their babies are cute, but we know that they don't necessarily impact how we live. And for, so for the sake of today, I wanna to define a kingdom this way. A kingdom is a place where things are exactly as the king or queen want them to be. If you've ever lived with a three-year-old, you know what this is like. <laughs> because they don't know that your house is not their kingdom, but you know it's not their kingdom. And so I wanna begin with a question today. If you were a king or queen, what would your kingdom be like? Maybe in your kingdom, uh, you would continue to improve in appearance as you age. You know, I'm trying to do that, but it's just not working for me. Or maybe in your kingdom, uh, you would continue to have, you would just have uh, all kinds of financial resources available to you. Or maybe in your kingdom, you would be able to play pickup basketball one day and still walk normally the next day. I don't know if that's a possibility for you. Or maybe for those of you who are students in the room, maybe in your kingdom, you would get paid to play video games. Uh, Pastor Tim was pretty excited about that last service. So, you know, maybe it's not just students. Or maybe you would be excited about your parents handing you the debit card and simply saying, hey, go have fun. (laughs) And so I thought about this in my life. I thought about this in my what my kingdom would be like, and I just wanna share a few things with you, okay? So in my kingdom, donuts would be exactly the same, other than they would have zero calories. <laughs> Some of you can get behind that idea, okay? In my kingdom, good coffee would show up on my desk every morning for free, Hent, hint, hint. <laughs> Takers, okay? In my, cal- in my kingdom, I would be able to dunk on higher than a seven-foot rim. That's the goal, right? In my kingdom, the Chicago Bears would win the Super Bowl every year, so basically, they'd be the Patriots. Patriots fans, apparently, okay. In my kingdom, I know it's gonna get divisive and I'm okay with it, but in my kingdom, every time the Cubs and Cards played, the Cubs would sweep the cards, so, you know. It's a, yeah, I got booed last year, so that's actually a better, uh, yeah. Anyway, clearly my aspirations are, are not the greatest, but fortunately, this isn't my kingdom. And so if a kingdom is a place where everything is as the king or queen wants it to be, then the kingdom of God must be a place where things are exactly as God wants them to be. But this concept of the kingdom of God is kind of a difficult one to understand. It's complicated and there's this this component to it that's just really confusing. And so when theologians explain it to help us try to wrap our minds around it, they use this phrasing. They say that the kingdom of God is already but not yet. And that doesn't really make sense because how can something be already but still to come in the future? So here's why the kingdom is already but not yet. You see God, gave each of us a choice. Because of his love for us, he gave us a choice to trust him and to follow him and to live the things his way or to trust ourselves and to live in our own kingdom. And because we made that choice, sin entered the world and sin has broken our world. It's broken our lives. It's broken creation. And in the midst of that, Jesus came and gave up his life on our behalf to pay for our sin. And through that, his kingdom came to earth. But it's this kingdom amidst the brokenness of our world still. It's so we know that his kingdom will not be fully realized until Jesus returns and reigns victoriously. And so now, in the midst of the brokenness, we we see a part of the kingdom, but we have not seen it fully. So it is already, but not yet. And so if the kingdom is active in our world... And it is something that is exactly the way that God wants it to be. It should not surprise us that Jesus actually spent a fair amount of time talking about the kingdom of God. But he didn't just talk about it. He, he actually gave us glimpses of what it would look like. He said, in my kingdom, the deaf hear, and the blind see, and the sick are healed, and the dead are raised to life. And when Jesus talked about the kingdom, he often talked about it using stories or parables. And parables are simply earthly stories with heavenly meaning. And so today we're gonna talk about one of those parables. And the story today is a a story called the Good Samaritan. It's a familiar story. You may have heard it before. Um, We use the phrase Good Samaritan in our culture to describe anybody who does something good for somebody else. In fact, the soup kitchen in our town is called, called the Good Samaritan Inn because it's a place where people serve others. And I know many of you serve there. And so this is how the story goes. Jesus tells this story about a man who is walking down a road and robbers capture him, they strip him of everything he has, they beat him and they leave him for dead. And Jesus says, three guys come by this robber, the first two ignore him, go on their way and finally, this good Samaritan comes and he does the right thing. He takes care of this man and he makes sure that he's gonna be healed and that everything will be taken care of appropriately. So this is a great story, but as we look at this story, it doesn't really seem to answer our question today, which is, how, how do we really surrender our lives and everything that we do? But what's actually going on here below the surface does answer that question. And so that's why we're taking a look at this story today. And so if you would join me in Luke 10, verse 25, you can read along in your Bible. It says this, Luke writes, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? One of the most important parts of this story and understanding how it relates to our question today is understanding who is Jesus is talking to. Luke writes that this man is an expert in the law. And the word law here, another word for that is Torah, which means the first five books of the Bible Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And these five books reveal a great deal about who God is and how we relate to them. And Luke says this man was an expert in the law or the Torah, he knew it well. And so this man comes to Jesus, he's a Jewish man, he comes to Jesus, he asks a very Jewish question. He says, what should I do to inherit the kingdom of God, or inherit eternal life? And before we get to Jesus' response, we need to talk about a couple things. First of all, Luke mentions that this man was testing Jesus. And often when we read in the Gospels that someone was testing Jesus, they were actually trying to trap or trick Jesus. As I studied for this passage, for this sermon, I realized that many commentators think that really this man was genuinely trying to understand what Jesus was saying. Another thing we need to understand is what this man was really asking. Because if I would ask you, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? You might think I'm asking, what do I have to do to get to go to heaven when I die? But in the first century with this understanding the man had, this is not what he's asking at all. He's asking about a particular quality of life. He's asking about the kind of life that we can only get from God, the kind of life that we can have now. And so in essence, this man is asking the same question. We're asking, he's asking Jesus, I, I, know you're, I know the Torah, I know what it says, I'm trying to live it, but what does that mean for my everyday life? What does it mean to live in your kingdom? And that's why this passage is so important because if it speaks to this man's question, then it also speaks to our question. And so Jesus goes on and he says, he points this expert in the Torah back to Torah and in verse 26 we read this. What is written in the law, he replied, this is Jesus speaking, how do you read it? And the man answered with these words, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. These aren't random words. This man quotes probably the most popular scripture in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy six, verses four and five. And these verses are at the core of what it means to be Jewish. They're at the core of what life is about. This man would have known them well. He would have said them each morning as he rose and each night as he went to bed. And for the Jewish people, this is one of the first things they teach their kids. It's a really familiar passage and it's an important passage. And so this morning, I wanna invite you in, in both spaces to read this together with me. Let's read verse 27 together. Luke ten twenty-seven says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your minds and love your neighbor as yourself. So this man answers this question with this familiar passage, and Jesus affirms his answer. He says, yes, you've answered correctly. In the end of verse 28 says, do this and you will live. And really, the conversation could have been over at this point because he's answered his question, but there's a problem. You see, the man wants to know not what do I have to do, but, but how do I know when I've done it? How do I know that I've completed it? And I totally understand that because there are commands that are really easy to understand, like do not steal. Did you steal? No, then you haven't broken the command. But how do you know when you've loved God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and that you've loved your neighbor as yourself? And furthermore, how do you know which neighbors you have to love? Because honestly, there are some that I would really like to be on the exemption list. (laughs) And I'm guessing that those of you who are laughing know exactly what I'm talking about. Because we've all had neighbors who make us scratch our head a little bit. And I just wanna say, if I've ever lived next to you and you're here today, you are definitely in my top 10% of favorite neighbors I've ever had. Okay, so there's no, no question about it. So here's what Jesus, or here's, here's how he says this. Luke says, this man, in verse 29, he says, this man wanted to justify himself. In other words, he wanted to know, how do I know when I've done this? So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And this is why this passage matters because Jesus chose to answer this man's question with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so if this is the answer that Jesus gave to this man, then it probably is also important for us to know in regard to what it means to surrender our lives to Jesus. And so we pick up the parable in verse 30. Verse 30, it says this, in reply Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now we know that Jerusalem to Jericho was about a 16 mile walk, it would have taken all day. It was not an easy road, it was a really difficult road and often the temperatures in this area soared above 110 degrees Fahrenheit. In fact, we have a picture of a monastery that's been built into the side of this road, so you can kinda get a perspective of what this was like. And so we see that this man is walking down this road, he is beaten, he is robbed, and he's left for dead. What happens next? Verse 31 says, A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now we know that priests were serving in Jerusalem in the temple, and many of them lived in Jericho. And even though this is a made up story, Jesus understood that. His audience would have understood that. And so this man is walking from the temple, he's walking home to Jericho, and he sees this guy laying on the side of the road, dying, and instead of going over to care for him, he walks around him on the other side of the road. Okay, let's see what happens next. Verse 32 says, so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now we know a Levite was also involved in temple worship, and so this man is doing the same thing the priest is. He's going from the temple in Jerusalem to his home in Jericho. And this passage has always really bothered me because this man does the same thing. These two spiritual leaders do the same thing. They see this dying man on the side of the road, and instead of stopping to help, like we would think they would, they don't just avoid him, they go out of their way to get away from this guy. And if I'm this man and the the people around him, I would be outraged by this because how could this possibly happen? But what's amazing is that these people would've understood this, it would've made sense to them. Why is that? Well, here's why. Because in Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, there are very specific instructions from God to his people on dealing with dead bodies. In Torah, we read that if you touch a dead body, you are unclean for seven days. If you happen to be in a tent when somebody dies, you are unclean for seven days. If you even go near a dead body, you are unclean for guess what? Seven days. And this is important because the priest and the Levite's job was to lead the people in worship to offer sacrifices, and if they were unclean, they would not have been able to do their job. So instead of choosing this to help this man, they chose to put the people before this one person and keep themselves clean so that they can lead others in worship. And again, the audience, Jesus' audience would've understood this. It would've made sense to them, as hard as it is for us to understand that. But what they wouldn't have understood is what happens next. And we read in verse 33, Jesus continues the story, he says this, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then they put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So finally, somebody does the right thing, right? The, The priest and the Levite tried to do the right thing, but this man does the right thing. He takes care of this guy. It's like this beautiful Hallmark movie moment, right? But what's actually going on here is not what we would expect at all, and here's why. Because Jesus said this man was a Samaritan, and Jewish people hated Samaritans. Now why did they hate Samaritans? You may know that in 721 BC, the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom of Israel, and when they did that, they led many of the people away, but some were left behind and those who were left behind intermarried with the Assyrians, and so their offspring were neither fully Jewish nor fully Gentile. It's not a big deal, right? Except for the fact that God had told them repeatedly not to do this, and so as the Jewish people looked at the Samaritans, they saw people who outright defied God's direction in their lives. They weren't supposed to intermarry. It didn't stop there though, as the people returned from captivity, we read in the book of Ezra that the Samaritans caused a lot of problems for them as they returned. It clearly, if somebody already doesn't like you, probably creating more problems for them is not a great way to make friends, right? Well, to go beyond that, the Samaritans claimed that their version of the Torah, their their version that God had given them was the one correct version. And the Jewish people valued Torah highly, so you can imagine this didn't really make things better. So Jesus, fully knowing this, chooses to tell a story about how two well-respected men in their culture, two religious leaders, tried to do the right thing and got it wrong, but then it was their mortal enemy who got it right. Now I want you to imagine with me for a minute somebody who frustrates you. Now I know we're in church and nobody ever frustrates us and everything is great, but just imagine for a minute what that would be like if it happened in your life. And then I want you to imagine Jesus retelling you this story. Imagine that instead of the the priest and the Levite, we have Pastor Wayne and Pastor Brian who are trying to do the right thing and they get it wrong, but then it's this person who really annoys you. They got it right. How would you feel? Probably not great, right? I certainly wouldn't, although nobody ever bothers me, just so you know, just to be clear. Um, But Jesus goes on and he ends the story this way. In verses 36 and 37, he writes this. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He asked the guy this question. And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This man could not even say the word Samaritan. How much easier is it to say Samaritan than the one who had mercy on him? But Jesus adds insult to injury. He says, you wanted to know what do I have to do? How far do I have to go? Who do I have to love and, and Jesus said, you know what? You wanna figure it out, go and be like this guy who you hate. And so that's the end of the story. And that's Jesus' answer to the question, how do I surrender my life? How do I live my life in light of what I believe? So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what does it mean for us to surrender ourselves to God and the various roles that we fill and all we do in light of this story? Whether we're at work or home or at the gym or at school, on vacation, hanging out with friends, whatever we're doing, how do we do that? Because this is essentially the question that this man is asking Jesus. You know, He knew the Torah and he wanted to live it and he still wanted to know, Jesus, what do I have to do to get this kind of life? He wanted simple answers. He wanted Jesus to say something like, you know what? Just get a Jesus bumper sticker, which I guess would be like, just get a me bumper sticker. Or, you know what, handle your business with integrity, or be nice to people, or carry your Bible with you, or be kind in your neighborhood, or don't return anger with anger. He wanted Jesus to say things like that. But Jesus didn't say that, and those are all good things, and they're things we should do, but they're not the answer to the question, because they're simple answers to the complex question of what does kingdom life look like? Because again, when we understand God's kingdom, it shapes the way we think about surrendering to him in all environments. You know, as I look at this conversation and I really boil down what Jesus is saying, it comes down to really one thing. He's saying, I want all of you. I want you to give me your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and I want you to love everybody. Everybody? Yeah, everybody, everybody. But let's remember that love isn't necessarily agreeing with everyone. It's not necessarily about making everybody happy. What it is about is treating everyone the way that God sees them. It's about placing others first. It's about making sure that others have what they need. And this whole idea of loving other people seems like a really easy solution, right? Like if I wanted to be a better dad or a better husband, I would just love my family better. If I wanted to be a better employee, I would would love my bosses better, I would love the people I serve better. If I wanted to be a better neighbor, which apparently I need to work on, I would just love my neighbors better, right? But I would suggest that if that worked, if just trying to love everybody worked, we would have already done it. Because we spend a fair amount of time talking about it, but why don't we do it? Well, I wanna suggest that I don't think Jesus' call to love others is so much about a feeling. It's not so much about trying to love people as it is an act of submission. It's about choosing to change the way that we see things. It's shape our life completely differently. It's about giving all of me to God's kingdom. It's not about warm fuzzies. It's not about checking off things on the to-do list. It's about completely changing our perspective. And so how do we do that? We do that by putting kingdom first in everything that we do. We intentionally step into kingdom life. And so how do we do that? Well, I have a few suggestions for you, which I know sounds a little bit like a to-do list, which I just said not to do, but let's just assume that changing our perspective is gonna require us to make movement and to be intentional about a few things. And the first one of those is that we have to shift the way we think about our lives and our time. You know, as I look at my life, I see the various things that I'm involved in. I see the different roles I play in my life and they're all part of a big piece of pie, different pieces of one pie. And in case you're curious what my life pie would be, it would be cherry, because clearly that's the best, Two of you agree? Okay, great. Um, but as I look at my, my life pie, I see the time that I devote to work because I wanna do a good job in my work. And I see the time I devote to, to my marriage because I want that to be good. And I see the, the time I devote to my children because I want that to be good. And I see this slice of pie that's devoted to God because of the time I spend with Him personally and the time I spend worshiping and the time I spend with my small group, the time I spend serving. And I see these other slices of pie that fill in the other roles in my life. The problem with this, this way of approaching it is that the, my God's slice of pie is really small. And so I think if we wanna get surrender right, we have to start thinking not, not about God as being a slice of the pie or even being a cherry on top of the pie, but as being the filling of the pie that permeates every aspect of who we are, who we are the substance of every one of the roles that we fill. God wants to be invited into those areas. He wants to be involved in those. He wants us to open those up to him. And so the very first thing that we can do as we try to change our perspective is to begin to see our life pieces of pie as being filled by him, as being what he desires them to be, as being one big thing. And so God is no longer a piece of pie. He he is the pie itself. And once we do that, well, then what do we do next? Well, the next step is, is to acknowledge that the way we live reflects God to others. In other words, our life speak. Yes, our words are incredibly important, but our life speaks so much louder and so much more clearly to others. And let's take a minute to acknowledge that this can be difficult depending on the environment that we're in. In fact, working here is really hard because there's so many bad influences I work with day to day. It's a joke, people, it's a church. It's not like that, okay? But the way we spend our time and the, way, the attitude with which we do that, it really matters. Because we can say what we want, but if our lives don't reflect integrity and faithfulness and consistency and love and compassion and grace, then nothing that we say really matters. Now I probably shouldn't admit this to you, because uh, some of you are gonna be thinking about this next time we talk, but every time I'm in a dialogue, I have this internal thing going on in my head, and somebody confirmed this after the last service, so it's not just me, but I'm always asking myself, what's your face doing? What's your face doing? Because sometimes, in a caring situation, your, your face needs to reflect care. And when you're in a compassion situation, your face needs to reflect compassion. And on the rare occasion that somebody says something really out there, my face needs to reflect that I, that I think things are gonna be fine and I'm not gonna freak out about what you just said. Because the, the way that my face appears matters to who I am. It matters to what I'm communicating. For instance, if you shared something really difficult with me and I was looking like this afterwards, would you, would you think that I cared? Of course not. And so in the same way as people striving to surrender our roles and our time, we have to learn to ask ourselves, what is my life communicating right now? What is my life communicating in the different places I go and the different things that I do? And sometimes this is really hard. If I can be honest for a minute, my small group would love to tell you that one of the most difficult places for me to let my life speak clearly is the grocery store. I am convinced that God has strategically placed me in Kroger to remind me that I'm a broken person deeply in need of a savior. (laughs) In fact, I would also suggest that maybe someday when I get to heaven, God is going to say, hey, Jonathan, remember all those times that you went to Kroger with the slow and indecisive people, which is nobody here, by the way, this weekend or watching online. Um, I did that just to remind you how deeply you need me. So here's here's the point is in every environment that we're in, we have to be intentional about what our lives are speaking. Because when I'm at Kroger, which by the way, I'm not being paid by Kroger to keep saying their name, it's just where I shop, okay? Um, When I'm at Kroger, other people matter. I know you're like, oh, they do, shoot, I didn't know that. But um, the way that I see other shoppers matters. Because if I see them as an inconvenience or an obstacle to what I'm trying to do, that's a problem. Because ultimately, they are somebody who God has created, whom he loves, who he desires relationship with. And so my, my life needs to reflect that. It needs to reflect God's love and compassion and grace. Okay, great. So in order to really get after this surrendering our lives, we need to shift our perspective. We do that by moving. We see God as the pie filling to our lives, who, who permeates everything that we do, and he wants to be involved in all that we do. And we, we see that... He's calling us to make sure that our lives are speaking the right kind of thing, and that sounds really good, but let's be honest, it's a lot of work, and it takes time, and none of us have time. We are all really busy, right? And that's true, but I'm also convinced that one of the roadblocks to surrendering our lives and our roles to Jesus is our obsession with busyness. You know, about well, six months ago, I started paying attention to every time I told somebody how busy I was. In fact, I did it this morning and I was like, no, because I'm gonna talk about this later. But I'm also surprised by how often I run into other people who tell me how busy they are. And what I've realized is there are two primary reasons we do this. One is because we wanna make sure that if we miss something, people know that, you know, we were busy, so it wasn't really our fault. But the other reason that we do it is to prove that we're valuable. We like to talk about how busy we are because we wanna make sure people know how valuable we are. And God has already told us that we're valuable because we're his creation. And so in order to really, the third thing we need to do in order to really surrender our roles and our time to God is we must be intentional about what we do in our lives to allow God the time to use us. And that sounds really good, but how are we supposed to do that when the pie is already full? I mean, we can't just cram more pie in there. It wouldn't look right, right? But it's not about putting more pieces of pie in the pie. It's about ultimately surrendering every aspect of our lives to God. And as we do that, one of the challenging things is that he may decide, you know what, this piece needs to be smaller and we need to put a new one in here because ultimately we have many good things in our lives but sometimes the many good things keep us from ultimately being about what God has called us to. And so with that in mind, let's go back to this idea of kingdom. As I mentioned earlier, kings, kingdoms are places where things exactly—excuse me—are exactly as the king or queen want them to be. And for many of us, we have some of that in our lives. We don't get to control everything, but we get to control many of the things that we do and how we invest our time and our energy. And so, if that's true, we have a pretty important choice to make: Will we live in our kingdom, or will we align ourselves with God's kingdom? Will we live in our kingdom and do things our way or will we live in his kingdom and do things his way? And you know what Jesus said, the way that we do that is by loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbors as ourself. But We wanna remember that, that love isn't so much about a feeling or trying to love people as it is an act of submission to God's kingdom in our lives. And so if we're gonna take that seriously, then we have to ask some other questions. As we live more and more his kingdom, will we shift our perspective. Will we choose to see things from God's perspective, from the kingdom perspective? If we're gonna do that, will we, um, will we t- invite him to take control of each piece of our lives? Will we see that there are, our God piece is not this one piece, but it's actually the filling, that the substance of who we are and each aspect of who we are, and will we invite him to take control of those things? Will we be conscious of what our lives are speaking in every environment that we are in? Will we pay attention to, to what our lives are reflecting? Will we choose to see people as an inconvenience or will we see them as people whom God loves and desires a relationship with? And then lastly, will we be intentional about creating space in our lives to respond to what he's called us to? Will we realize that it's really up to him, it's it's really his pie, and we get to choose to allow him to shape that into what he desires it to be? And so with that, I wanna invite you to, to stand this morning. Um, in a moment, we're gonna continue in our worship, and as we do that, we're gonna enter into a time of prayer in both rooms. Um, and you're you're welcome to stay in, in your seat this morning and, and pray, but we also wanna let you know we're gonna have trusted leaders of the church up front who would love to pray with you about anything that's on your heart and your mind. But as we do that this morning, I wanna highlight a few things that you might wanna pray about. Uh, first of all, maybe you've been here this morning and you've heard all this talk about kingdom and you realize that you haven't taken that first step to invite Jesus to be the king of your life. And so maybe this morning is the time that you want to do that, to step into that. We would love to talk with you, to answer your questions, to pray with you about that. But for those of us who made that decision, there are a few other things we might need to think about this morning. One of those is, is there a piece of our pie that we have been shutting off from God? Like we know that he wants to be a part of it. We know that he wants to, to transform us. He wants to use that, but we just keep it from him. I certainly have had those those moments in my life, and if this morning is one of those moments for you, we'd love to pray with you about that. Another thing is maybe there's an environment that you live in on a day-to-day basis where you know your life hasn't been speaking the right kinds of things. And maybe today's a day you wanna commit to changing that, and we'd love to pray with you about that. Or maybe this morning, simply just a reminder from Jesus that we have to love other people when it's really hard. Maybe, maybe somebody's mind, name came to your mind and maybe God is saying, you know what, today's a day to commit to making that a priority in your life. And then lastly, um, maybe the thought of doing this, of, of doing any of these things is just overwhelming because of the fear of what God may call you to. And so maybe this morning is a time that you need to just, you know, you know what, God, I'm, I'm just gonna trust that whatever you call me to, that you're gonna provide a way to do those things. And so just a moment, I'm, I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna continue to worship as we do. Please come and pray about any of these things or, or anything else that is on your heart or your mind. And let's pray together. God, we we think about this question this man asked. What, it, what does it mean to live in your kingdom, God? What does it mean to have this quality of life that you're offering to us, Lord? How do we do that? Lord, we know that we're supposed to, but Lord, often we don't know what that means. And so, God, I pray right now in this moment, whatever that means for each of us today, God, that your spirit would nudge us. Lord, that we would respond to that. God, certainly that's something I know I need to do in my own life, Lord, on a regular basis is to just ask that question. God, what what does it mean for me to submit to you and the roles of my life and the time I spend, God? And Lord, I suspect that we each need to do that. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that as we continue in our worship of you, God, because you are so good and you are so holy, Lord, that you would also help us to see what it is that we need to do and to respond to that, God, trusting you fully. So Lord, we thank you for this space so we can come and worship you. We thank you for this space where so we can hear your word and be reminded of, of what you've said to us, Lord. And God, I just pray for the, the courage this morning to respond to whatever that is, Lord. So we praise you and thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.